Hey, I'm Bob Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts and stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's seeing driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. The DJ Bob Show. Pop culture, past and present. And now, here's your host, DJ Bob. If you'll notice, even in this cold open, I'm very excited. And that's because I got to talk to someone whose work I've watched for years. And to be able to have this candid conversation with director, writer, all-around great guy Andy Fickman. We talk with him about his start as an executive for such films as Hocus Pocus and more implementing disability inclusion in the work that he does, and so much more. It's your love fest, it's your pop culture, Palooza, it's just fun. So, you want to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. My first, and quite honestly, honest question is, what are you not doing? Because you're always doing so much stuff. I think what I'm not doing is sleeping. That would be the, what I'm not doing is I'm not sleeping. Uh, I, I am, have always been, uh, I've always been someone who, who has really been motivated uh, when I'm not working to figure out what I can be doing to work. And um, this has been a, a crazy um during the pandemic, it's been, uh, uh, I guess I've been very blessed and lucky that I've continued to work in many ways, uh, both with television, film and theater. So, uh, but the pandemic has made it, everything is, you know, two times as hard to figure out how to make your days work uh, from a health standpoint and safety. So uh, I, it's been a lot of learning new ways of working as we go. And because I know at the start of the pandemic, everybody was sort of scrambling to figure out what to do. How long did it take you to kind of get into the, the swing of things? Um, it was interesting. We were doing a show for with Kevin James on Netflix called The Crew. And we were filming in Long Island. And we were about five episodes in of a 10-episode order. And you know, from the top of the year, from January, February, March, we were hearing as the rest of the world was of this, you know, of COVID. And we got to the end of episode five, pretty much, or six. And Netflix said uh, pretty much everybody was shutting down around the world. And so we, we shut down. My wife and I uh, have a, had a newborn uh, and uh, so we went to my uh, my mother-in-law's home in Minnesota, and my son was still in uh, uh, getting ready to graduate from USC. So he was in L.A. And we went and then from March till August, 
we kept refining how we would potentially go back to work, both from a creative standpoint, ours was a multicam, and with Netflix. So how do you do it? How would you do it? How would you film it? And what are the safety protocols? So we were one of the first shows back in August. We start. We went back to Long Island, took our whole cast and crew. And I think we spent so many of those months where we were down learning how to approach filming and what that meant from a safety standpoint and everything's different. How do you handle a prop? How do you, how does the crew have food? How does an actor work? And obviously their masks are off. So how do we protect them? So I think I learned a lot during that. And when we finished that in September, we went straight to Chicago to do a a movie for, uh, for Disney channel called Christmas again. And we shot that on location all over Chicago. So everything I had learned for the crew for Netflix, I was able to apply to that. And that really helped because I think I came in uh, better. So you, so you really, you really didn't have a break. I no. Mean, yeah. No. And then we, we went, we were editing the film and then uh, thankfully vaccines rolled out. Uh, so, you know, those two shows were shot when it was no vaccine. It was just scared and, yeah. uh, every day. And then uh, I have a musical Heathers that had returned to the West End in London. And we were the first show to open back on the West End, really. Um, so I had to fly to London and uh, I flew to London in May. Uh, after I edited the film, flew to London and had been in in London and uh, uh, parts of the UK for the entire summer doing the musical while I was prepping the movie I'm currently on and pretty much flew from London here to Wilmington, North Carolina, where we're filming our current movie. So it has been a nonstop, uh, it's been nonstop work. And every time you do a project, you feel lucky to work. Uh, in this environment, since the pandemic, uh, I feel like uh, every time I do something, hopefully I've learned something else from the previous time out with the pandemic. And it gets, I don't know if easier is the word, but manageable. You do realize that that studio where you shot the crew and Kevin can wait like 15 minutes from me. I did not know that. Yeah. That is our, our home base in Beth Page. Yep. Um, <laughs> I love uh, I had never I'd never spent really any time in Long Island. And then when we did Kevin Can Wait, uh, uh, moved there. Uh, and so between Kevin Can Wait and the crew, I think uh, I think we lived there for about three years and fell in love with uh, fell in love with Long Island, fell in love with the people, fell in love with the food, um, yeah. everything about it. And it was the crew. Um, the crews working on Kevin can wait and the crew, many of them, the same were just uh, amazing, amazing people on, on and off camera. I mean, if you ever, if you ever back. Yeah. I'd love to see you. I would happily come see you. That's right. That'd be great. So before we get into like your directorial stuff, you're a part of a pop culture phenomenon from an executive standpoint, can we kind of talk about Hocus Pocus? Cause that's kind of a big deal. Uh, um, I, I was such a small part of it, but I'm so proud of it. I was uh, doing development for Bette Midler 
uh, at her company, All Girl Productions, and uh, Hocus Pocus was uh, uh, one of the projects that when I first got there, I got to work on and uh, help through development. And then we got going and making the movie. And what a joy uh, to see that movie all these years later has such um, uh, such cult following and love. And uh, additionally, through that, I uh, I got to meet uh, Kenny Ortega. Of course, he was brilliant. Uh, um, the wonderful uh, Gary Marshall, who became a mentor of mine, and eventually I got to direct in uh, both Live in Maddie and Race to Witch Mountain. And ultimately, the, I got to re-team with my old boss, Bette Midler, in parental guidance with Bette and Billy Crystal and Marissa Tomei and Tom Everett Scott. So every time Hocus Pocus is on, uh, I nothing but smiles and, and proud of whatever small part I was able to add to, uh, to helping that movie along. Yeah, we, we had, um, most re- a year or so ago, we actually had Tom, Tom Everett Scott on our show, and he's the sweetest. He is not only the sweetest, but I currently have him here in Wilmington because he's one of the stars of our movie here. That is great. That's my third. uh, We did uh, parental guidance. We did Race to Witch Mountain together. That was the first time I started working with Tom. And uh, now he's one of the stars of One True Loves. Tell him I say hello. I will. So... How did you get started directing films? Um, I'd only, I grew up in, in Texas, originally from Midland, Texas, and then we moved to, to Houston, uh, where, I went to, where I was there for high school. And um, I just loved film and TV and theater my whole life. That's all I, I just was so absorbed by it. And when I graduated, I went to Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas, and I graduated. I didn't really know had no connections in Hollywood and I certainly didn't know how it worked or, and maybe that was to my benefit because maybe if I had known more, I would have been maybe afraid to go, but I just went and ultimately I, I helped, I was part, I helped build a theater company called the Fountainhead Theater Company. And we helped build a theater there. And I started doing a lot of local theater that, while I was working for, for Bette Midler. And prior to that, I got to do development for Gene Wilder. And so I had a Hollywood day job in development as an executive. And then at night I would direct theater. And I did a show called Reefer Madness that, um, that ended up getting a lot of attention. And that show transferred to New York and it, um, it had the unfortunate, like the rest of the world, timing of uh, we opened just days after 9-11. So we we were there during that. The show closed like so many other shows did during that time period so rapidly. And then uh, Bob Greenblatt, who uh, had just taken over Showtime, uh, knew Reefer Madness as a musical and uh, said, let's do it at Showtime. And so we turned that into a... A movie at Showtime uh, got nominated for three Emmys Award, won an Emmy for Kevin Murphy and Dan Studney for their music. And uh, and that really launched everything. I had prior to that, I did a very small indie uh, teen 
comedy called Who's Your Daddy? That was a wonderful learning experience for me um, uh, with my producing partner, Betsy Sullinger. And uh, so, so I think, you know, if it had not been through theater, I'm not sure I would have ever been given uh, the opportunities that, that I, I, I've been given. Having that executive, you know, job, did it help you know the do and don't of, you know, what's okay in a film and what's not? And sort of like the nut can bulk of it all? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I, I, I tell everybody, like, everything I did prior to directing helped me. My first job in Hollywood, I was a tour guide at Universal Studios. And, and, I, and to become a tour guide... Uh, which is probably the hardest job I ever had to interview for, you really had to learn history of Hollywood and specifically at Universal. And then I went in the mailroom uh, at an agency uh, called Triad that eventually became part of William Morris and then eventually merged with my agency, Endeavor. So I'm currently at WME, where, which is basically I'm in the same agency where I started in the mailroom. Um, but then I learned that side of the business, what, it, what agents dealt with and deals. So by the time I started development and as an executive and working on the producerial side, you began to see how things were really done. And I think without that well-rounded education through Hollywood, I'm not sure I would have made all like it's it's always helped me. We try to produce as much of our own material as we can because of it. Um but even if we're not producers, I write a lot and of uh, the things I'm directing. But I always tell studio execs, you know, I've been where they were to some degree. And I'm willing, like, I'm going to approach the day and the material and the issues uh, with their concerns in mind. And so I really think it just helps you figure out, you know, at the end of the day, we're a business. We have X amount of hours we can work. We have X amount of dollars we can spend. Um, you, your appetite for what you want to do that day has to match what you can do that day. Or you have to be able to go to your executives and convince them why your bigger plan is going to help the movie and needed. So I definitely feel it, it, that fuller education has helped me 100%. And something that I've always kind of admired about you is how you're always never afraid to make sure that inclusion, especially those with disabilities, are included in your films. How is that, how is that important to you and why? Because we've got such, we got such a long way to go in that area. And so how do you feel you know, about it? I, I, it it's... I, I would probably say that I start with um, great parents who um, kindness and empathy um, and awareness were really crucial to growing up. And so it, it concerned me that to me, uh, the same was sort of colorblind casting. To me, it was the idea that uh, great people come together and work together. And I learned from everybody. I also got very early on, um, very early in my career, I started working with Make-A-Wish Foundation. And when I started working with Make-A-Wish, invariably I'd start having a lot of these amazing, remarkable kids and their families come spend time on the set. 
And then I saw that how many of them wanted to be active and some of them wanted to act, some of them wanted to spend time. And what, you, what it really did was just encourage me whenever possible, um, just, be, just be open to great people coming aboard and learning from, from everybody. And then I get excited by being able to tell as many stories as I possibly can. And I think, I think as people, we're better as, as, as uh, humanity is better off when we open our eyes to the full world and not so myopic to the world that we're, we grew up with or the world that we know. And uh, so it's just been a, you, you know, you hope sometimes the rest of Hollywood catches up to how you think. Uh, and I have to say the majority of the people I deal with are, are really do try. Um, I know that it's, as you said, it's a long way to go, but yeah. uh, even but just I, as a viewer, because I still, there are some moments where, you know, it's like you have a disabled character, but why don't you cast a disabled actor? Yeah. It, it, it's becoming stronger now yeah, uh, for sure. I'll, 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 I'll give you an example. In our movie, One True Loves, we have uh, uh, one of our one of our actors uh, is, is one of the characters is deaf. And and we had in a, a child and we didn't even think any other version other than let us audition all the great deaf actors we can find. And we just we fell in love with our actress who's playing the role. And then that meant for us to make sure we covered ourselves with proper ASL uh, translators on set with proper, like me want to make it a great experience for her. Um, I think you're able to ask those things now and you should ask those things. And that, that goes the same with, uh, with colorblind casting is that sometimes it just requires us as, whether you're a director or producer, you just have to push. And I think in the past, there was sometimes that notion that, well, if an actor's in a wheelchair, you know, if characters in a wheelchair, just get a good actor to do it. And, and, and taking nothing away from wonderful performances from actors. But I think you have to do the work. I think you have to find those actors who are truly representational of of what that character's needs are and you, and you put them in and I think you're going to be uh, so surprised by how much more you're going to get out of it. I know I am. But also the writing has to be strong. If you're, if you're writing the character where it's like make room for the character or feel bad for the character, you're not getting anywhere. Yeah. I think you need authenticity. I like to try to give my script uh, to members of whatever, you know, potentially disenfranchised communities or or groups that are, you know, not spoken up for. I try to give my script to them uh, to be able to say to me, hey, this is not the correct way to do it. This is another we're developing a script based on a true story, a remarkable script uh, and uh, about a, a young man who uh, is an amputee. And what's been important to us is uh, every step of the development of the material has been with him because he is far more capable of saying to us, that feels right, that feels wrong, that feels heavy handed, 
that feels I actually that would be funny to me. And and that's been our sign off on that material by having his voice from head to toe in it. Literally every every thought that could happen, he has given us, including the moments of what happened when, you know, the moment he lost his leg and what that what that felt like. And currently what he is doing now, I I need to be educated and I need. I need his thoughts to really help us. And, uh, and so, yeah, you have to do the extra work. Uh, but I think to be truthful, I think our job is to do the extra work. If you were dealing with a character that was an alcoholic, you shouldn't base your, your storytelling on what your view of an alcoholic is. You got to do the research. You have to yeah. talk to people that had been dealing with that. And I think that's the only way my, my dad died when I was 16 and and sometimes when I see uh, loss of a parent handled on screen or death like that at, for at a young age, I I have my own personal opinion of oh I don't think that it feels like nobody they know has ever lost a parent as a child because they're just going through the motions of right, what they think. Right. And I get I get frustrated like I you know you could have called me and I would have told you there's, there's so many more layers, as you know, there's so many more layers to a character and a person and what they are dealing with daily. Uh, and until you're walking or, or rolling and a friend of mine who's in a wheelchair and he called me once and he said, he was talking about a script that I, I was not involved in, but a script that he was talk that he was being consulted on. And he said, they're, they have done this moment where there was a dance and they had the, the character in a wheelchair off to the side and he got really angry and he said, here's the problem. They don't think I can dance because I'm, I'm in a wheelchair. And he said, I can wheel and roll like the best of them. And I would <laughs> like tell them that. Tell, and then it was his way of going to them and saying, don't, don't sideline this character because you, your traditional vision of dancing is about people with two legs and that's wrong. And so I think like, the, again, the more that it becomes a conversation and the more we're willing to open up our eyes and say, I don't, I don't know what this world is. Educate me. That's, that's, that's how we're only going to get better with our storytelling. And I mean, look, like, it's so interesting that you say that because, I mean, this podcast is about pop culture for, for one thing, but it's also, it also has an und, it also has a side sort of theme as disability inclusion because, you know, I, I mention this ad nauseum whenever I do this, but it's like, as a kid, TV and radio and music and all that stuff were my friend because I couldn't play outside. Yeah. Or so if I can change somebody's perspective at least once, yes. I'm not telling you to go into the production meeting the next day and be like, we have to change this, but at least opening someone's eyes that I speak to through this podcast. That's what we're trying to do. That's, you know, what, and that, that gives you, you are the voice of a storyteller and you are allowing through your podcast, lots of stories to be told, but then you're an advocate. You're somebody who's pointing out to others and 
you know, sometimes, as we know, people look, everybody has something in their life. Everybody has some issue they're dealing with, uh, whether it's financial or personal or physical, mental. People all have different things. And so sometimes we get so focused on our own world that we forget the world around us. And so that type of open discussion is important, which is why a podcast like yours, which isn't just, you know, talking about one thing, but opening those type of questions, which to be honest, I'm probably not going to be asked on somebody else's podcast. And so that really gives, you know, what you're doing, it elevates that. And again, just reminds us as storytellers, you're telling a lot of stories, you know, they always say, tell the story that, you know, and, and I do get that. And I, and I, and I appreciate that, which is I'm best served starting with an element of something I am familiar with, but I'm always trying to find my way that, you know, how could I write a story about a, a guy who's a murderer? If I've never murdered, I'm not going to go out and murder someone to feel, see what it's like, but can I figure out what the, uh, you know, what is the psychology behind why he or she did that, or they did that. And so maybe I can find my way into some sort of element of, that you're looking for. And I think it's the same in writing, you know, massive amount of different characters uh, um, with, with different diversity, different disabilities, any of that, I just feel is on us as a, as a group. You're only going to make your project better when it represents as many parts of the world as it possibly can. I mean, and that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to connect with you because I knew that you were so open and so welcoming to the disability community in such a big way. Um, I believe in parental guidance, there was a Make-A-Wish kid on the screen for a scene or two. There, there were, there were. Um, I think on almost every thing I've done, I've done my best to, to have a Make a Wish uh, child on screen. On on uh, playing with fire in Canada, we were able to get uh, uh, just a wonderful young lady, and she was on screen. On Kevin can wait. We did. Uh, uh, we were able to get uh, a, a young man and his uh, family on screen. Um, anytime and and so many kids are you know also a little camera shy. They don't want to go on screen, but they're there to be a part of the process. And uh, and so I I just feel I, I I I get more out of it. I think, and honestly, so does the crew and the cast because it is a reminder for all of us. Um, you just got to stop for a second. You got to see the bigger picture. And uh, I will always continue to do that. And, um, and that's that hopefully we'll, we'll just continue to, to grow and hopefully others will do it too. On a lighter note, and this is a total 180, who <laughs> do you think would win in a fight? Channing Tatum or Billy Crystal? Huh. I'm going to say, well, I'm going to say Billy. And here's why. Billy is so funny. First of all, Channing's the nicest human being in the world. So I think Channing would have a hard time trying to throw the punch. I know <laughs> if he landed the punch, it's a knockout. But I think Billy would keep 
chanting, laughing so hard that he would get an uppercut in there. And Billy's a big athlete, one of the great baseball player, uh, and was such a big uh, fan of Muhammad Ali that I think I think Billy would surprise Channing just by, you know, it's the old trick of keep them laughing and off guard, and then they never see it coming. I could have easily hit John Keenan, but that kid given. I wasn't going to do that to you. I appreciate <laughs> So another thing I want to bring up is that in parental guidance specifically, did you guys sort of predict the smart home thing? Uh, it's very funny. You, uh, we started doing research and the research we were, we were finding was all very much about kind of smartphones and smart homes. And we treated it like uh, Tom Everett Scott's character had created this sort of revolutionary new up design. And, it, and when we had it, we had the, the amazing voice of Helen Mirren was playing our, our smart house. And, but everything we did at some point, somebody would say, oh, do you really think you could call in and have your lights turned on? Do you think you could? And all the research we had, it wasn't that long ago. All the research we had was like, yeah, there are companies. And we met with a company in Atlanta who came out for just a general meeting and, and told me that there was nothing in that we were talking about in the script, there was nothing in our script that wasn't already deep, deep, deep into development. And, or in some cases was already an application, but was so expensive at the time, it wasn't an application for everyone. Now something like the Nest, uh, you know, doorbell video is like, you know, the staple of like TikTok. Yeah, or the ring, like, yeah, the ring now, doorbell, but, yeah. But then it was like, you know, it felt like you had to be, you know, the Prince of Wales to be able to afford technology like that. So uh, I am glad that it looked like, I believe early on, someone said, well, we don't want it to look like the Jetsons. Like, you know, everybody oh. compares it. To, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. That was, but that is, uh, we got very lucky. <laughs> yeah. And so funny, you know, a bunch of my listeners will probably argue and say, you know, there was this Disney Channel movie called Smart House 20 years before. He's like, yeah, but, th but that was sort of different. In a, yeah. yeah. There was certainly, I mean, there were certainly those moments where we weren't the first ever tackle. No, I totally know that, but I'm just saying. But we did sort of appreciate the idea that it was, it was something new and specifically for... But you didn't make it like an extravagant thing. It was just what they did. We wanted it to be, we just said we wanted it to be grounded in real technology. And then, and then that became something for a different generation. You know, part of our, our there's a great moment in there that I always love where Billy and, and Bet were working the answering machine and they were befuddled by, oh, I, by yep. the answering machine which I always said was just like my mom trying to work the VCR. And I think that it was a generational thing that happens to this day. You know, my son is 24 and Austin has to handle like 
I call him about everything that I don't like. Austin, how do I how do I record this TikTok? Like Austin has to tell me everything because I look at it and I'm like, I, I had a VCR when I was growing up. I didn't. I don't know how any of this stuff works. So you do feel like it's generational, uh, and that I think played to the comedy of of what that movie was 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 aiming to do. And the reason why I bring up that film so much is. I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to like butter you up or anything, but it is literally one of my comfort films. Oh, oh, I love hearing that. That because there isn't I feel like the idea of the family film just doesn't exist anymore. Like just good, lighthearted. There's no you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was the idea was inspired by by Billy Crystal himself as a grandfather and what it was like to spend time with his grandchildren and what it was like to have been a dad. He has two amazing daughters and he has amazing grandkids. And and that that idea is what inspired him to sort of create the script and uh, and and get it in the shape that that we got it in. And and I think we wanted to do a movie that the whole family could enjoy together. And a lot of what I do, or a lot of what I try to do are films that I think everybody can enjoy. Um, and it's a wide target. And sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes when you have a wide target of a film that you're trying to make enjoyable from eight to 80, um, sometimes people miss the point because they're like, well, that joke was stupid. You're like, no, that joke was intended for the eight-year-old. And then they'll be like, well, that joke felt too old. And I'm like, that joke was intended for the 80-year-old. And so you're, you want, you know, you want to be a little bit to everybody to be able to say that. Because if not, it's not true co-viewing. And I think the pandemic, in so many ways, all of a sudden had everyone home with their families staring at the TV. And figuring out, I know at the beginning of the pandemic, my mother-in-law, myself, my wife, uh, and uh, two of my nieces, one from uh, high school, one from college, we were all there for months together. And every night we would watch a movie. And I would try to curate the list of classic films that maybe that my nieces had never seen, like Die Hard and stuff like that. And we were having such a great time and we realized we were like, well, we've never, never done that. But every night I was trying to find a movie that would appeal to a lot of age ranges and would appeal to a lot of sensibilities. And so I'm very happy that parental guidance, I, I'm happy it's touched you in that way. And I'm very happy that people really, I mean, and thankfully it, it turned out to be a hit for us, but very happy that people responded to the movie and still respond to the movie that way. Yeah, because when I tell people about, you know, my favorite sort of family films, I always bring up the classic, like one of my favorite movies of all time, talk about Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Like, ah, and, I'm with you know, you. going down the list of like the John Hughes films and like all that, all that stuff. And then there's parental guidance. <laughs> Uh, it sort of is wedged, is wedged right in there too. So. Oh, thank you, 
Thank you so much. And by the way, getting a chance, to, the years I did development for Gene Wilder, I, I'm the kid who grew up like you, like uh, Willy Wonka was one of my all time favorite movies. And I love the producers and Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and Silver Streak and like so many stir crazy. But Willy Wonka, my first time I met Gene for my interview, I thought even if I don't get the job, that's okay. I would have met Willy Wonka. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and I think those, you know, every it's making anything film, television, theater is hard uh, because it's subjective and you, you can't write something for the critics because that's a, a losing battle. And so I like to, you know, I'm a person who enjoys movies and yeah. television. And, and if you really think about it, Willy, Willy Wonka itself was made to sell a candy bar. Yeah. Yeah. And by the and, way, it was very much almost an adult film uh, and, and so many levels. And uh, and for I, I think you, you, you it, you're so happy if you create something and years later, people still talk about it. That's the that's the legacy you're creating. That's the legacy you're involved with. And it certainly makes me happy when when I meet people such as yourself who say some movie we did or television show or a piece of theater, you know, not only touched them, but stuck with them. That's, that's, that's a wonderful feeling. Thank you. You Thank got you. it. Because like I said, the idea of the family film is sort of like few and far between now. Yeah. Where, where there's no sort of agenda or celebrity, like huge product placement or, you know, it's like, it's either a kid's movie or t like there's no middle ground anymore. Yeah, you are, you are, you are absolutely right. And that's the, you know, when we did something doing something like playing with fire or the, our Christmas movie, we're really excited. Christmas again will air on Disney channel December 3rd. And for us, it was not about making a kid's Christmas movie. It was about making a family Christmas movie. And I'm really proud of our cast and I'm really proud the story, which is very much Groundhog's Day uh, set at Christmas time uh, through a, a young girl's uh, experience. And but the adults in the show are so great and and it's family co-viewing and that every day we made decisions on set based on, you know, will the family enjoy this just as much as we were saying, would a kid enjoy this? And, you know, it's funny because I believe it's been 10 years since Disney Channel had a Christmas. You are you are a thousand percent accurate. And it and it threw us when we found that out, too. I just in my mind, I just assumed they did them all the time. And no. And, and then when we found out that it had been 10 years, we were a honored to be the first ones doing it a decade later. Um, and I, I, I think it's I'm hoping it is a we relaunch a tradition for them. Uh, I'm, 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 I, I love holiday movies and the feel that they can do for you uh, during that time period. I am I was born on Christmas Day. And so uh, being born on Christmas Day somehow makes Christmas uh, when you were growing up as a kid, I kept thinking like everybody was celebrating my birthday. 
I needed to be, uh, I turned out I was wrong, but, uh, but in the process, it has a special meaning because it is my birthday as well. And you celebrate it. But then those Christmas movies all became very near and dear to me. And I think that's what we, we set out. And I hope, I think when audiences see it, uh, shortly, uh, I'm hoping I totally that get that. I totally get that because my birthday is on December 2nd. So, ah, you're right in the world. So it's like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's um, it's really cool to hear you say that about, you know, Christmas content. Because that's another thing. That could either be done so well or or just cheese fest. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a weird line, and I think probably because the holiday means so many things to so many different people around the world that you're trying to, you know, are you dealing with Santa Claus? Are you dealing with the spirit of the holiday? Are right. Religious aspect? Are you dealing with family and home? It, it, there's a lot of things that are touched upon, but the minute you say it, you can almost just hear that Christmas bells sort of playing you in the bet. background on the soundtrack. And you're like, okay, got it, got it, got in, it. Got in it. fact, for years, every, every, like the day after Thanksgiving, we put up the tree just so the tree is up by my birthday. Because so, I want that whole, uh, I want the, I love, whole, the whole vibe. I love that. Well, Thanksgiving is my favorite meal of the year. And so every year for Christmas dinner, my birthday dinner, I always ask for Thanksgiving. Uh, so, uh, and then my mother-in-law keeps Christmas up. Usually it'll go up right around Thanksgiving or right after Thanksgiving and it'll stay up. It feels like it stays up later and later uh, because you never want to see all the pretty lights come down and it always puts a smile on your, on your face and then it goes away and then you start getting excited. I always love from Halloween to the end of the year. I love you know, the combination of Halloween to Thanksgiving to Christmas, the seasons, the holidays, the feel. Uh, so I love that time of year so much. The yeah, time I mean, of year we're in right now. It's, it's really it's really great to hear that you're uh, dipping your toe in the Christmas canon. Because that is. I, and I've wanted to tip my toe in the Christmas canon for a long time. And I Disney sent the script. When we uh, right before the pandemic, actually, we got the script in January. We were going to film it in July when I wrapped the series and we were going to be out last Christmas. And then obviously the pandemic hit, the world shut down, and then we filmed it over the holidays uh, to hold it back for this year. Um, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait for you to see it. I want to know your opinion when you see it. So. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is like, do you ever look on like YouTube for people reacting to your movie? Cause that can, that can yeah. new kind of thing that people are doing. Uh, yes and no. You know, the, it's the old saying that if you dig too much on the internet, you'll find all the horrible mean things that people say. And so I tend to, I, I, I tend to, I don't read reviews on purpose because I don't ever make a movie for critics. I make a movie for audiences. And I love when somebody says something about, oh, they enjoyed it. Great. It's so subjective. 
Um, every once in a while, someone will send me something very funny that someone did that was potentially mean-spirited, but it may be. They are literally people watching the movie and giving their reaction in real time because they've never seen it before. Oh, I think I've seen, I might have seen one or two. I think someone sent me something. Somebody was watching She's the Man yep. for the first time. And I saw that, and that was pretty delightful to watch. But I do. No, you're fun. Yeah, they are. It's always the. I always get a little bit of nervous when I see an email that somebody's like, "Uh oh, here's someone that's watching this movie." You know, I'm like, "Oh no, what are they gonna say?" Oh no, I don't want. There's a um, uh, in uh, Mall Cop Two, um, which we had so much fun making. And my son, I did Mall Cop Two because my son and I, one of his favorite movies is Mall Cop One, and when the producer, Todd Garner, had called me and said, would you do Mall Cop 2? I jumped at it. And then getting a chance to work with Kevin James, which obviously has continued to be a part of my world. Kevin's a, the godfather to my daughter now. Um, but when we made it, you know, as we were making it, we were laughing. We're like, there's going to be a whole group of people who are just going to not enjoy the notion of mall cop too. It's just going to be too much like, Oh, oh no. yeah. And, and at one point, I think it still exists. There's a, a podcast where I think once a year they watch mall cop too, just to sort of talk bad about it. And then yep. somebody emailed me and said, Hey, I know them. Do you want to be on their podcast? And I was like, uh, I'm pretty sure I don't, uh, I'm not sure why I would want to go on a podcast in which all they're going to do is talk bad about something that I enjoyed making. And honestly, audiences also had a good time with it. Again, not everybody is going to, it's not everything you make is not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but, uh, but those who enjoy it, then you found a sweet spot for them. So it is. And, you know, when the business 15 years ago, you just didn't have that sort of interactivity on the, on the internet uh, in the same way or 20 years ago, you know, people were not able to have such instant connection. And I think there's a lot of good that has come from that. I mean, we're talking, we're talking right now. Yeah. And that's the good that's come from it. Or you find fans, uh, Heather's, uh, the musical. Um, big code following as such, a, as, as such a massive international following in our show. We're just getting ready to open in Dublin. We were just in Belfast uh, last week, and we opened in Dublin on Tuesday. And and by the time the hair, it'll probably be a few weeks after that. But yeah. then, but then we, but we, we just love hearing people's reactions around the world when they see the show. And Kevin Murphy and Larry O'Keefe, who wrote it, we just we love fans. So that's the positive. And then there's going to be the one person who wants to let you know how much they hate something. And you're like, Oh, okay. Good, yeah. Good well, time. I'm going to, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. When I heard that they were making a mall cop too, I was also nervous. <laughs> you I found that it was you directing it. Ah, uh, thank you. I, I have to say we had so much fun. You know, somebody asked me like, Oh, you know, they were talking about mall cop too. And I was like, I don't know what you, if you're going to go see Ball Blart, Mall, Mall Cop 2, you know it's not like Jane Austen present Mall Cop 2. Like, what are you, what, what, what part of this joyful experience of this just lovable character, and Kevin James is such a gifted comedic actor, but what are you, 
Like, what do you think Mall Cop 2 is going? It's not Masterpiece, Masterpiece Theater presents Mall Cop 2. It's so funny. I was talking to, you'll get a care of this, a few, a few months back. I was talking with the one of the stars of the Cat in the Hat film yeah. with Mike Myers, the yeah. main kid in it, Spencer Breslin. And he said, like, it's not going to be Citizen Kane. It's just going to be a movie that people like. <laughs> but that, that's his, his reaction. I mean, that to me is the, when, when we made Anaconda, we were, we, we, we just sort of like, we're always like people were approaching it. It's a giant snake movie. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it literally also was not like Jane Austen presents Anaconda. <laughs> Here's what happens. There's a giant snake and then the people he's going to fight and he's going to uh, eat several of them. And then several of those people are going to fight back. And that that's that's the fun of those movies. You're, You're not, not asking for a criterion like induction into the. Right. No the way. If I'm watching Bridgerton, which I thoroughly enjoyed, at no point do I expect to see a 40-foot snake show up in the middle of Bridgerton, and nor do I expect in the middle of Bridgerton all of a sudden Paul Blart to zip in uh, and, and give a citation. Like, I have an expectation of those movies that also are separate of the type of movies that I happen to make and love as well. Um, people sometimes just can't in their minds separate what those are and that was your tangent on Pobarron Cop 2 <laughs> I don't care um, another, thing, another thing I wanted to ask you just because it'll spark or might, uh, maybe an interesting answer what kind of family film that you wish you directed just because you loved it so much mm. I, I think one of my favorite family films ever uh, is Parenthood. And uh, I just think it's brilliant. And I had the pleasure, uh, Ganza Mandel, who wrote it, uh, also wrote uh, um, Parental Guidance. And I think that just being in their universe made me feel great. And that I just think that movie, I, I never, like, that's a movie that I just admire it's just sheer perfection for me from head to toe uh, where I just think the characters are so great. The direction is phenomenal. The storytelling is great, but that to me is a family movie that uh, there's a little something for everyone. And it's just something you can pop on and enjoy and yep. just not matter think when, about I mean, it. Doesn't matter how long, when the last time you saw it, you'll put it on. And for me, it'll still make me smile. Another film of recent years, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a movie called Wonder. Oh, Wonder is spectacular. I love that movie. Wonder is just spectacular. Again, great. Uh, I believe it was a book first. Yeah. Um, and and so wonderful source material. The writing was elegant. The direction was top notch, and that cast was great. And you know, you are. It is hard not to watch that movie and not have that, your own sense of wonder, watching it with yeah. such, like, it's just effortless entertainment. And uh, I agree, it's another top-notch Not film. Not many times do I see a movie in theaters twice, 
Yeah, that was one of them. Well worth it. Well worth it. You have excellent friends. I took people to see it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you got to see this. Yeah. You know, like, and, you know, talk about disability representation. That was huge. Yep. yep. Very, very true. And, but again, like we had started the conversation earlier tonight about you, you need to take those risks and those chances and you need to show all kinds of stories for the world to see. And I'm so happy that we are kind of past the point of like the kid in the wheelchair is the butt of the joke. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, the, I think that I'd like to believe and, and I'm going to, I'm just enough of an optimist to believe that each new generation is becoming kinder in so many ways and that, that they are more open to, uh, to the world around them of different faces and, and uh, different lifestyles and different people and different body shapes and types that, that they're, I, I, I would like to believe my daughter who's two and a half is gonna grow up in a world in which uh, that is far more the accepting norm than the previous world of feeling like everybody is sort of defined by who they are and therefore those people stay with those people, these people stay with these people. And, you know, it's a very important thing to kind of, even if you're indirectly kind of ushering it in, it's important. Yeah. Because you don't want to be preachy about it. You just want it to be there. 100%. That's all you have to do. And so to wrap this up, we we couldn't do this podcast without giving some love and gratitude to our friend, Kevin Copo, past guest of the, yeah. I'm so thankful that he introduced us. Kevin, Kevin and Heath, um, we were massive fans, uh, have always been massive fans of theirs. And uh, they wrote a a wonderful uh, movie that someday we'd like to get made. And then I got a chance uh, because Rainey Rodriguez had been in Mall Cop 1 and 2, and because she was such an active part of the Austin and Alley team, I, uh, I got to uh, direct an episode of Austin and Alley uh, where I had such an amazing time and they, everybody's so lovely. And then I got to be on set when Rainey was directing an episode as well. So they are, they're really gifted storytellers and they're kind and they're funny. And that's, that is also, uh, they're committed to making sure that they're bringing family entertainment, uh, up to the next level. And, uh, they're, they're just both wickedly talented. And, you know, when, when I found out that you, you like, you worked on Austin and Alley. I'm like, can you kind of connect? I can't tell them <laughs> the whole story. Cause for the, for the uninitiated, I've been trying to get in contact with the guy for eight years. I don't know what happened, but, <laughs> but we're here now. And it's been absolutely wonderful just talking to you. Uh, this has been such a joy. And, uh, 
I am uh, now such a fan of yours and what you're doing. And I hope uh, I hope you'll uh, see it in your heart to have me back on at some point. You know uh, it. Because I've enjoyed our conversation. And now, now you know how to reach me directly. You don't have to go through anybody. You just come straight to me. So, you know, for the fun of it, do you have a question for me? During all of your podcasts, have you come away overall with a, what is the thing that you've learned that surprised you the most overall after doing so many podcasts and talking to so many different people? Well, you know, just a little brief history lesson. I've been doing this podcast in some way, shape, or form for the past 11 years. So this is nothing new, but I would say like these past few years, I've kind of just experimented and found different types of people to communicate with. And one of the things that I've learned is like, you can just have a natural conversation and you don't have to put on any fronts or you like, some of the some of the most entertaining people that I've spoken with are just people that just happen to do some cool stuff. Like just yeah. it's not and one of the things that I've noticed about these conversations is that I'm so glad that I started talking about my disability more on the podcast. For a while I didn't. Mm. And I didn't do that because I didn't want it to become a part of the show. Like I didn't, you know what I'm saying? I just, I didn't want it to be like, oh, they're just doing this because he's disabled or what have you. Because I, but I realized that it creates a dialogue between the guests and it makes them curious and want want to know more and it's really helpful on both ends of the phone or the zoom call whatever you were using so well you've done it beautifully my friend and i think i think it's really helpful because i also think when you're when you're sharing stories when you're talking i can only talk from my point of view and so when i'm answering a question from someone who Sometimes you do a press tour, you do a podcast, and it's a lot of questions, but not a lot of give and take in terms of the person you're talking with. And I get that. Sometimes that's just maybe on a press tour, you've got, you know, interviewer has 10 minutes. And so they really can't get into a lot of, let me tell you about me. But when you're doing something at length like this, boy, I find it really enjoyable to get to know the person that I'm talking with. And I find it helpful. Um, because it helps me frame the conversation uh, the same way that you're getting to know me and asking. I don't have the chance to get to know you. So the more you give me info like that, I, I think it's really wonderful. And uh, and I am glad we've had this uh, first of what I hope is many chats to come. And um, where can people connect with you? I guess on Twitter, I'm literally at, at Andy Fickman. 
you know, and people DM me, they find me, they say things. Uh, and then on Instagram, hopefully nice things. Yeah. By the way, don't say mean things on Instagram. I'm hair director, which is a old nickname. Uh, and so you can find me on Instagram, find me on Facebook, find me on Twitter, reach out. Uh, I love hearing from people. Um, uh, and like I said, I'm looking forward to more time with you. Well, they keep been enjoy. The DJ Bob show, pop culture, past and present. <laughs>